Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey guys, this is Joe McCall with Real Estate Investing Mastery. I am coming to you live from the studios, the Real Estate Investing Mastery Studios in Venice, Italy. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm, nice. I'm, I'm in a hotel, uh, some kind of hotel here in Venice. Really, I am here, and I'm excited about this show, Alex, because we've got Than Merrill again back for a second time. We didn't offend him uh, too much on the Not first too badly. episode. No, no. <laughs> he's, I think he still likes us. And, uh, but... Um, I, I'm really excited about this podcast. I want to jump right into it because uh, Than's time is very valuable, and I don't want to make. I want to make sure we're not taking up too much time. And I think Alex, we lost you for a second, but you're coming back in. Than, I was. Uh, we were talking before, and uh, you're going to show us how you can make hundreds of offers a day. Is that right? A, a month. A okay. day would be impressive. <laughs> Man, you're giving me way too much credit already. So yeah, a, a month using the MLS. So it's going to be a, a good, good call. Definitely, I'm looking forward to that. And you also just released uh, a new book that I've been looking forward to for a long time. I, I, I think it's been over a year when I heard Michael. No, it's been about two years, and I heard Michael Gerber speak at an event in St. Louis, and I forget what event it was. And he actually talked about. He was mentioning the the E-Myth series, and he was actually talking about how he was excited about working with you on this E-Myth book for real estate investors. And uh, it was a long time. Maybe it wasn't two years ago, but I've been looking forward to it ever since, and I got this notification in Facebook yesterday or two days ago that it was finally out. So congratulations. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, Michael's uh, somebody I read the original E-Myth 12 years ago, and Highly recommend the original E-Myth if you haven't visited, written, uh, sorry, read it yet. It's the E-Myth yeah. Revisited. And that book really gave me a, a totally different outlook on business. Yeah. It's not a real estate book, but it is a, it gives you the philosophy of how to build a business. And I, I was always appreciative of Michael's work. And so it was a pleasure to write the E-Myth Real Estate Investor with Michael. We co-authored it along with my business partner and, uh, yeah, it's been uh, a long time coming, but definitely something that we're excited about. And you were the one who introduced me to the E-Myth book. I remember f- going through your stuff. Um, you had some YouTube videos that you were doing. Obviously, you had your show, and then you had the website, and you started teaching things. And you were I, – I joined your wholesaling university. Do you remember that? I do. I do, yeah. So that was, was quite a few years ago, but uh, yeah, absolutely. That was a great program, and um, – uh, you, that was one of the first things that you teach everybody that was in, in your programs is you need to think about systems and you need to think about systemizing your business. And I, I really love that philosophy and I've, I've hung on to that for years. Yeah, that was the, the original concept of the E-Myth written by Michael Gerber was just that. The, the, it really distinguished the difference in my mind, what I got out of the book and what you'll get out of the book and anybody listening is it distinguished the difference between working on your business versus working in your business. And it talked a lot about how business owners a lot of times just become proficient technicians, but they never become good managers and they never become true entrepreneurs um, without making steps to, to 
basically reorganize their business and, and think about it from a different perspective. And so when I read the book, what it really did for me is it opened my eyes to all the things I was doing wrong. <laughs> and it opened my eyes to really uh, the problem that most business owners suffer from, real estate investors included. And for the past, really the past, over the past decade, I've been applying those principles to my real estate investing business, which is uh, you'll see a glimpse of today when we talk about our MLS offer system and how we make hundreds of offers a month to find properties on uh, that are good deals on the MLS. And, and I think you'll see a lot of those principles applied to what we're talking about today. That's good. I'm looking forward to that. How many people get that point and how many don't? And you can definitely tell. I'm you know, working with uh, the different contractors uh, in my business. You can see which contractors get that point of working in the business or working on the business and not in the business. You know, for instance, like when we had our hardscapes done around the house, uh, the, uh, the actual contractor actually came, met with me, um, you know, set up the job or whatever, closed the deal. And then he put in place the people to actually go ahead and put the, 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 uh, pavers in. And he actually only showed up here and there and kind of thing, but yet he made the difference from what he paid his contractors to uh, to do the work. Then there's the contractors that come and they do everything themselves and they can only do it. <laughs> How many jobs can you do by yourself all at once? You know, the guy that has it set up correctly, he can do five jobs at once. Yeah. Guy that doesn't, you know, what, one or two, and then he's running around like a chicken with his head cut off. Begging you for money, asking for uh, early payments. Exactly. <laughs> you got it. So, uh, Dathan, what is the website people can go to to get that book? Uh, if people are interested, you can go to thanmerrillbook.com. So that's Than, and then my last name is M-E-R-R-I-L-L, book.com. And when you go there, we have a, uh, a little video that goes along with the book as well, just the interview with Michael and I where we talk about the EMIS principles, and I talk a little bit about how I applied them. So it's it's just a good little bonus to the book itself. Good. Good, yeah. I, I highly recommend that. I already ordered it. I was wishing it was on Kindle. <laughs> At the time we're recording this, it's not yet, and I can understand why. You're trying to get the book sales up. But it was already number one in Amazon under uh, real estate. And, yeah, under real estate, it was already number one. And it, you can get the hardcover for uh, just 20 bucks or something like that. Well worth it. And I, I'm actually, it'll be in, at, at, my, at my home office uh, waiting for me when I get back. I'm looking forward to reading it. This is, I'm really excited about this book. So congratulations. So, well, thank you. I appreciate it. We're going to talk about, and by the way, guys, if you're, if you're driving and you need that link to that, it'll be in the show notes. And our website is realestateinvestingmastery.com realestateinvestingmastery.com, and we'll give you all of the links and, and the notes and the transcript of this conversation with Than. Uh, Than, you guys operate a machine. It's just crazy. It's insane. And one of the things I love about fortune builders is you give away the farm. I mean, you tell everybody exactly how you would run your business. You don't hold anything back. And one of the things that you guys are really well known for is just doing tons of marketing and making tons of offers. And when we talked last, we, we asked you, hey, can you tell us a little bit more about how you and your team can make hundreds of offers a month on the MLS? What does it take to do something like that? And, and maybe start from the beginning. Why is that even important, Dan? Why is it important to make a lot of offers? 
Yeah. So really, uh, as an investor, what you'll begin to realize uh, if if you're starting out and if you're experienced, you already know this. On average, it's going to take you anywhere between 10 and 20 offers to put a deal under contract, typically. And that would be over a variety of different marketing methods. That could be direct mail. That could be online leads. That could be properties listed on the MLS. And the MLS, the the, the MLS uh, for a lot of investors is a very consistent source of deals. Now, some people who don't work the MLS the right way may say, well, you know, there, it's too competitive or there's no deals. And the reality is, this is the way I always equate it. If you understand the facts about the MLS, and in most areas, 80% of properties are sold by an agent through yeah. the MLS. Yeah. And so um, I absolutely love, you know, generating our own leads, you know, getting direct to the seller, doing direct mail, doing online markets. So I'm not discounting any of those strategies whatsoever because, in fact, our more profitable deals come off the MLS. The MLS is more competitive. It is, you know, there's a way to work it the right way and there's a way to work it the wrong way. And I've done it both ways. However, just sheer volume, if you're going to expand your business, the MLS is going to be part of what you do. And so a lot of our investor students that we work with, as well as ourselves, I mean, I would say most of our students, somewhere between 30 and 70% of their deals come off the MLS. It's, it, it's a certain percentage of deals okay. that are, are consistently coming that way. And that's just based on the statistics of how many properties are listed in most areas on the MLS. So, you know, I'll, I'll kind of break down how we are able to make hundreds of offers. And I'll kind of give you an outlook. You know, our real estate office, we have four team members who do acquisitions. So all they're doing all day long is looking at properties, uh, analyzing deals, making offers, following up on offers we've made, following up on the people who said no to try to, uh, over time, maybe they uh, change their mind. And so two and a half of our guys, when I say two and a half, two, two guys full-time, all they do is work the MLS. Wow. Uh, and then the other two guys, one guy is just direct mail, online leads, you know, sellers that are contacting us directly. And then the other guy splits his time between, you know, if we have a lot of leads that month from other sources, he's spending his time on that. If we don't have as many leads that month and he's spending his time on, on the MLS. So it is a big part of what we do. Um, and it's been very consistent over the years for us. And we, you know, we have a process for how we do it. And I think that's what I will outline in the call um, to give people an idea of, you know, some of the traps, some of the things you shouldn't do and some of the things you should do when it comes to work in the MLS. And this is in San Diego. Is that right? Yeah. So we're located in San Diego, uh, California. So we work the, really the, the majority of the San Diego County area, but we're, we sometimes are pretty lazy. So we don't, work the whole county. We'll work like 30, a 30 minute drive from our office. So, okay. um, but we started, you know, we started in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, working a section of Connecticut. Um, so we've done this in, in multiple areas and we do own homes in different markets around the country that we buy and hold as well. But, uh, what I'm going to be focused on really is, is just the structure of the MLS yeah, and how yeah. to connect with agents. If, if that works for you, Joe, for sure. Of course. Well, cool. Let me let me give people an outline and just feel free to interject at any point 
you know, Joe, with, with questions or clarity. So first thing I always tell investors is you have to start to understand on a weekly basis how many properties are actually hitting the MLS because that will vary by area. Some cities, you know, like Dallas are massive and you might only work a quarter of the market. Uh, you might you might be in areas that are smaller and you might work in two different markets with two different MLSs. The MLS obviously is the multiple listing service and it's, it's a database of properties that agents list and are required to put their listings on. So everybody knows that. The key though that I see for a lot of investors to really do this the right way is speed. That's the most important thing because it is competitive. You will come into multiple offer situations frequently on deals that, that, that are listed. So you want to start carving out little niches that you find. One niche, for example, for us, that has been very profitable are newly listed short sales. We find a lot of investors shy away from that because um, either A, they're working with an agent and the communication gap, they may not have a full understanding of short sales. But a lot of times agents who list short sales um, are in control of the deal and sometimes agents are sometimes investors find it difficult to work with them and navigate the short sell process but the great thing is it's probably the least amount of competition hmm. for any type of deal you know we we target joe uh, new listed short sales reos and we target really any general type of distressed property so those are our three buckets and, and from a from a standpoint, those are the those are the three buckets that we that we target. So what we do, I'll give kind of everybody a process overview, is every day and every week we track listing volume. So we can track what's going on in the market. You'll start to actually understand your market better. You'll start to get a feel for inventory levels. And then we put those opportunities. So let's say 100 properties hit the MLS that day. We go through all 100 properties and we look at two things. We look at the description the realtor puts in about the property, and then we look at the pictures. And we'll take 100 listings and we generally narrow it down to about 10, maybe 15 opportunities. And so the other 85 or 90 properties are retail. And you know, Joe and Alex, that retail deals are properties that are fixed up that are going to sell close to market value or at market value. Yeah, yeah. And for us as investors, I mean, those deals are, are a waste of time and it's not going to be something. So we're looking for distressed properties. We're looking for properties that are dated. We're looking for properties that, that we might be able to split the, the lot and, and build two townhomes. We're looking for properties that are older, that are smaller, that we might be able to add a second floor on top of. So we're not looking for just properties that we can fix up and turn around and resell as they sit. We're looking for properties in addition that have additional value. Maybe we could double the square footage. Maybe we could knock the home down, build two townhomes. Maybe we could, uh, maybe it's just a property that's really ugly and has a foundation problem. So what, what our guys do is they, they look at those properties and literally we try to be on the phone with the agent within a couple hours uh, of the listing really? hitting like, that's how quickly we want to move. And we've found that to be really advantageous because there are some sellers, uh, private sellers that an agent might be representing whose speed does matter. And so the quicker you can get in a certain, you know, I know probably 10, 15, 20 deals a year come to us just because of speed. That's like the number one differentiator. That's not, you know, not the only thing from, from that standpoint. 
but uh, um, overall, that that's been a, a, one of the biggest advantages is just getting on the phone with that agent right away. The other one that I brought up earlier is short sales. As you guys know, a lot of agents, some agents are very experienced working short sales, and some agents are very inexperienced, and. Um, it can be you, it, it can be very time consuming, but if you get a good agent who understands the value of an investor, a newly listed short sale is good because one, a lot of investors won't necessarily want want the deal or want to hold out or go through the negotiation process. A lot of retail buyers don't want to sit around and wait for yeah. three months for the bank to make a decision, and the, the agent's going to get paid basically only if that house sells. So some agents overprice their listing, some agents underprice and they get no attention. And what we do is we basically work hand in hand with the agent to, through the negotiation process and let the agent know right up front. We let them know up front if our offer doesn't get accepted. Let's say it hit the market at, at $400,000 in, in San Diego and, you know, just adjust this to where you live. If it's, you know, in, in a different part, it might be 100000 or yeah. 200000 so we'll let the agent know, hey, it, the bank's not going to put your short sale package on the top of the list unless you have an offer, unless you have a short sale package put together. And most of the time when we reach out to agents, they may have contacted the bank once, but they don't have an offer and they don't have a short sale package to put together, nor do they necessarily always want to deal with that or know how to do, do that. So we'll reach out to them and let them know this is what our offer would be and here's our experience with short sales, and here's what we can do to facilitate the process and take a lot of work off your plate, you'll mm. still get paid. Um, and if the bank doesn't negotiate to the price that we're willing to offer, a lot of times they will give you a discount where you then can drop the list price, we'll back out, and you can now sell the property. So, you know, I would say, I would say probably only 40% of our short sales that we put under contract do we actually convert with agents involved just because we're trying to get a, a pretty significant discount. So not every bank is going to negotiate, but we, you put 10 of those in your pipeline and you get four that pop out the back end and, and it, it becomes a very consistent, reliable source of deals that you can build a business on. Yeah. So you know, those are the three things that we target, and I'm happy to walk through the rest of the process, but I, I'm sure you guys might have a couple thoughts or insights. What are the three things? Short sales is one, right? Yep. What's the second? The second one is any type of general distressed property. Okay. okay. So anything that might be water damage, fire damage, or just ugly, dated, sure. or or something we know. I'll, I'll, I will tell you one thing that, that's been that's been very key for us uh, to working the MLS and making it work. You know, if you, if you have a good contracting team or teams, and if you know how to rehab and or build homes and or add additions to homes, there's a subset of the market that isn't that competitive in a lot of areas. A lot of investors will look for just, you know, simple rehabs, but if you can, Go, if you know how to navigate the zoning process or you know how to navigate uh, and add a second story on a home or add a you know a 1500 square foot addition there's a lot of neighborhoods especially in the mid to higher price point neighborhoods where yeah. you can find smaller homes and add square footage and when you calculate the after repair value of the property it's a very viable 
development opportunity. It's not necessary. And a lot of times we, we aren't even dealing with the most motivated sellers. You know, these aren't necessarily sellers in pre foreclosure or sellers that are down and out that just, you know, don't have a lot of options that are financially strapped. These are just people that don't, don't know how to do that type of work or don't think about their property that way. And if the price points make sense, it can be very profitable. That will be a little bit dependent on where you live and a little bit dependent on the types of neighborhoods you work. But we do that frequently where we'll add square footage and, you know, we might calculate the, the after repair value of just rehabbing the home and leaving it the same square footage and it doesn't pencil out. Hmm. But then when we look at it a different way, it ends up being a sizable profit or at least a, a decent profit on the deal. And so that's, you know, those are opportunities just by knowing neighborhoods and by knowing your city that will pop up on the MLS that a lot of investors won't call on because it doesn't look distressed. It might just be, you know, an average property, an average neighborhood, but it's a smaller property. That's and so those are opportunities that present themselves. Yeah, go ahead, Alex. So those uh, deals that you're talking about right there, probably the last five or six deals we've done, we do exactly that. Now, that's actually a very com- well, a very competitive spot in our market right now because people understand that you can tear a house down. Around here in Norfolk, there are a lot of two-bedroom, one-bath one houses that are between, oh, six, seven hundred, sometimes 800 square feet. And you buy the things for, well, we used to be able to buy them for like 45 and 50, but now the market's uh, been slowly going up as people realize you can tear those down and uh, build a new house there and sell it for uh, $245, and a great way to get in there and, and do that because these notes, you know, the notes on the houses are 100 120 and we get the bank down to, you know, 50 55 The max I just paid on one was 60 You tear the house down for about five grand. You're in it for about 65000 You build it for 120 Ten hundred fifteen, and you sell for two fifty, and you make yourself a nice, you know, a nice profit. It's definitely a. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up because it's definitely a, a unique opportunity. Because if you can understand the skill sets of of creative real estate and how to perform short sales, you know, your competition a lot of times is going to be builders or people that really don't don't go out there and market. They understand the construction side but they just rely on realtors to bring them opportunities or they might go to the auction. And so if you can understand the creative side or if you can understand the pre-foreclosure side and you have the skills, you know, to do a $100,000 plus construction project, there's a lot of opportunity there because you can, you know, a builder or somebody's not going to, most of them, some of them will, but they may not wait around or want to go through the short sale process with the agent and, and that's been a very, very good niche for us. REOs in our area are much more competitive. Just properties that are generally distressed are much more competitive. So that's been a, a niche of ours. I'd say one other thing, and this is probably the biggest uh, of, of all, speed is, is an ultimate factor. And then having a good follow-up process. I would say, I don't know exactly, I pro- I'd have to ask, JD and our team in the office, but I'd say right now, probably 40% of the offers that we're getting accepted from the MLS, the agent and the seller, the seller originally said no really? to our offer, but it fell out of contract or 
the seller, you know, it sat on the market for two more months. So we follow up at 30, 60, 90. I mean, we, we are religious about follow up when it comes to the offers that we make. The other thing that we do that I've found um, is how you communicate with the agent is probably the most important thing. And this is what a lot of beginning investors don't understand is the agent, a lot of time, a lot of these deals, frankly, a lot of the offers may not even get presented to the seller if, if the agent doesn't like you. And I know they're supposed to present all offers, Yeah. but if they get a blind offer or they just get an offer, you know, emailed over to them or, or a lot of times agents just, you know, they're not going to either sell your offer or they may not present it all together. And so the key that we found is really how you communicate with the agent mm-hmm. is one of the most important steps of the process. And think of an agent, I always think of their assets to your business. A lot of investors look at agents like, you know, just somebody who works for them or somebody who's going to do some labor for them. An agent is a very vital part of your team. And you want to find the good agents to work with and you want to build a good reputation for yourself. So the I, one of the most important things is because you're going to be making a lot of offers, when another agent is upset because your offer is low, you have to spend the time to communicate at a high level and reposition hmm. what we do. Because we don't want agents saying, oh, they're just low ball or, you know, or they're just, you know, agents have, you know, agents need to have perspective and we need to have perspective about what agents do. And so when an agent is upset by one of our offers because it's lower than what they expected, all we, all we do is take a few minutes to reposition and get them to kind of step into our shoes, understand, you know, we have to make a conservative profit. Our offers have to be lower. We take a tremendous amount of risk. We put a lot of capital up, you know, when we're rehabbing these properties. And if we take the time to let them know, hey, you're right. You know, you're right, Mr. Agent. We're not going to be a good fit for a lot of your listings. In fact, a lot of your listings, you're going to get a retail buyer who's going to pay you full market value. However, there are going to be properties you run across that retail buyers won't want, properties that need significant amount of work, properties where you might have a pre-foreclosure timeline and the seller just doesn't have time for somebody to get qualified and get a mortgage and buy the property. And so for those types of properties, that's where we're a good fit. So we just try to position ourselves as a tool in their toolbox. So when they have a situation or a property that fits um, what we are looking for and they don't have a lot of time or they don't have options or the property needs a tremendous amount of work, then we're the best tool that they can utilize. And so a lot of investors don't spend that extra time. And each one of those conversations, you know, when we talk to an agent, we put it right into our database. We, we will uh, connect agents in our database so that we know, you know, that agent works at Keller Williams and we did a deal with John, you know, three months ago in the office. So we start to build a lot of trust and rapport with agents. We know exactly who we talk to, every conversation we've had, we track. And we just build these long-term relationships so that we get pocket listings. Yeah. I mean, that's, at the end of the day, you guys both know the value of agents who's feeding you pocket listings or things before they're listed. It gives you an advantage. It doesn't mean you're going to get every property, but it gives you an advantage because you know about it before it hits the MLS. And so we look at every conversation that we have as an opportunity. If that deal doesn't work, we want to get the agent to really respect and enjoy you know, working with our company in some capacity for the future. 
and we will follow up with that agent. Even if the deal doesn't get accepted, uh, if the offer doesn't get accepted, just to build that relationship so that when they do get the next property, they may pick up the phone and call us. And so I'd say, you know, a good portion of our properties from the MLS, the agents are calling us, you know, maybe a day before it hits the MLS nice. or, or, you know, when they're, they sign a listing agreement and they're picking up the phone and calling us. And that's a good position to be in. And I don't think we'd be there. It's not magical what we're doing. It's just understanding how to build trust, rapport, value, positioning your company, explaining what you do, and so on and so forth from that, from that perspective. Very good. So what do you, you know, somebody who's new and into the business, Than, and, and wants to get started making offers on the MLS, how can they get started kind of going along that track and building those relationships with realtors? Do, do you recommend they get their license themselves? Does that help a little bit get their foot in the door? I always recommend that people get their license. That's mm-hmm. not going to stop you from making offers and, and don't let that be, or don't say I got to get my license before I start investing or your license is not essential to, to your success. I'm sorry. I should put it this way. Your license is not being licensed is not being licensed is not going to stop you from being successful. However, I do believe it's advantageous yeah. for a lot of different reasons. So if you're not licensed, the best thing to do is find a good agent who is investor friendly and who understands what we do is very flexible and can set you up first of all with all new pro you know I would get a feed from them an email feed from them for all newly listed properties in the in the areas or zip codes that you're going to be looking at so you should be looking at everything because Yes, you can have them filter where they just send you REOs or they just send you, you know, remarks based on, you know, a cash offer only or something like that. So you can have these searches set up that filter your leads. But I think the best way is just to get all the listings that hit the market coming your way and looking at those. Eventually, you should get licensed. It's going to make it much easier to comp properties. It's going to make it much easier. Agents trust other agents. I will say, you know, we get a couple deals a year. Because we are licensed, and, and they they say, "Oh, you're an investor. Oh, I am an agent. Okay." And there's just a level of trust and rapport built. Um, one thing that's very important: it doesn't get us. I would say probably thirty percent of our deals come because we can offer both sides of the commission. So that's an important thing to bring up early on. When we, you know, what we'll do is soon we'll take a hundred new listings. We'll weed it down to ten, fifteen. Then we call on those listings that day. We have a requirement in our office. You have to be on the phone that day with that agent. Then what we do, we, this is our process, and this isn't necessarily the process that I'm going to advocate for everybody you know, listening to this call, but uh, our process, we will call the agent first. We call that a set call or a warm-up call. We're gathering the information about the situation, the seller, what's happening, filling in the blanks about the property from any pictures that we don't see on the MLS, you know, if there's limited pictures, we're making an estimated repair cost. And then what we'll do at that point is we're feeling the agent out a lot. If the agent is not investor friendly, there's a good probability that that lead will be graded as something that's cold and will only follow up with that lead if we have time, which a lot of times we don't. So 
we, we prospect to make sure we're dealing with an agent who understands our value, who understands what we do, which is, you know, 75, 80% of the agents. But some of the agents we can say, hey, that's just an agent that's going to be a little bit difficult to work with. Because there's so many. You have, you know, yesterday, the day before, the day before that. And so we really we do a good job grading our leads. That's probably one of the best things that we do. And the reason we're able to buy a lot on the MLS is if you were to look at all the properties that hit the market and there's a probability chart of it being a deal, we do a good job filtering. Hmm. That's what we do a really, really good job of. So that we're only spending on t- time on, on things that have a high probability of converting. And so we have these different measures that we look for that. Then what we do is we don't go look at the property. Now, th- if you're new, I would tell you to do exactly the opposite. Um, blind offers um, are not going to be competitive a lot of the time. And we lose a lot of deals because of this process, but we make up for it in the number of offers that we make. So I, I call our offer system semi-blind in the sense that what we do is once we have an agent on the phone, we let them know our experience. We let them know, you know how many properties we've done. They feel very confident in us. A lot of times they may have heard our name or we've worked some, with somebody in their office, which is advantageous, but it's not enough to get the deal done. Yeah. But then we'll, we'll let them know based on everything they tell us that we're going to call them back with an offer that will be contingent on a quick inspection, but we don't go look at the property. And we do this so we can make more offers. And so we get the agent comfortable with the, the fact that we haven't seen the property. A lot of blind offers just get emailed. Yeah. And there's no communication or very limited communication with the agent. Or the, you're pretending like you went to go see the property when you didn't. We let the agent know that we don't, and this is our process, and that when we do get either a verbal or an indication that, that, there is, that this is really close or within the ballpark, then we go inspect the property. Now, if you're new, I would do the opposite. Your offer probably won't be competitive enough, and you, you, without that experience, you should you know, so I would say for your first year or two, you should be going looking at the property before you make an offer. Right. Um, so we only flip-flopped as soon as we had enough experience, enough of a track record, and enough of a comfort level with construction costs to be able to bid projects off of pictures. So then once we get a good indication, then we're out in the field with one of our project managers estimating repairs. And so we'll estimate repairs at that point. And a lot of times we may have gone to contract or we may have, you know, been in the ballpark and then we were very close to going to contract when we're doing our repair estimate and confirming our ARV. But we confirm our ARV right from our desk. Uh, we're really accurate on ARVs. The repair cost is really going to be dependent on the pictures, how accurate we are there yeah. uh, of the property. And then, and then we, we follow through with the contract, or we may be a point where the seller says we're in the ballpark, we do a repair estimate, we realize there's a lot more repairs than what we expected, and we negotiate. Sometimes there's less. Most of the time there's more than we expected. Um, and that's our process. And it's, it's you know, the, the key, once again, is, is knowing what motivates the agent. That's, hmm. that's really the key. Some agents, you know, want both sides of the commission and the back-end listing. Some agents... Don't, you know, believe it or not, some agents play it, you know, uh, a lot of agents play it by the book. And so you offering both sides of the commission 
may actually work against you sometimes because you may have, you know, if you factored in that commission, if you are licensed, you know, we've noticed sometimes it works for us, sometimes it works against us. We've lost deals and we, we look at it and we go, man, we offered both sides of the commission. Had we kept our side, we could have raised our offer a little bit because we got beat out by, you know, three grand. And if it had, we kept our commission, it might've been five grand, right? So you have to really feel the agent out and we'll wait. A lot of times we kind of hold that back. We hold the, the, the both sides of the commission back. So initially we'll have a conversation and we won't pinpoint, you know, whether or not we're going to be representing ourselves or not. And we'll just gather the information. If we get into a situation where, hey, I got another investor, he's hot and heavy or she's hot and heavy on the on the property, then we'll say, hey, you know, Mr. Agent, here's what we can do. We can strengthen our terms, right? Maybe we can't raise our offer, but we can also offer both sides of the commission. And the reality is a lot of agents that, at that point start selling our deal a little bit harder to, to whoever they're representing. So... You know, it's it's kind of a, ma- a cat and mouse game. You know, with with when you offer what things. You know, do you offer both sides of the commission? And a yeah. lot of times we will because it is very, you know, a seller or an agent will start to sell your offer harder, or they'll say, "Hey, do this. Your offer is a little lower, but you know what? If you can put a much bigger deposit and you can close two weeks quicker, quicker, I think the seller will take oh. it." And so we start getting that information about how to position our offer. Doesn't mean it's going to get accepted but they're giving us clues about how to beat out a multiple offer situation. So those are just some of the things that we do from a, from a uh, MLS standpoint. That's, that's fantastic. And I, I, I agree with having a license that helps because there's so many times I call a realtor and, or I, I, I don't know if it's a realtor and I'm calling somebody back and find out they're an agent. I can say, Oh yeah. Hey, I'm, you know, I'm Joe McCall with Keller Williams. And it just, you feel the kind of, wall fall a little bit, you know, because there's just a little more uh, trust that is made between that, I think. Um, there, there is, you know, that you bring up a really good point that a lot of investors um, may not recognize yet. And that's people, agents don't always look at investors with a shining light. And, and I, I would say, you know, I'd say, 50% of agents are indifferent, you know, meaning they, yeah. they like investors and then they, they like, you know, higher offers, right? And then there's some agents, a small percentage that have a jaded viewpoint of investors because they had one guy who turned them off, who lowballed, and, you know, that was their experience and they're new. Most experienced agents, you know, love investors because they, they can buy from them five times in a year, 10 times in a year. And, that could be 10 commissions versus a retail buyer who buys once every five years. Mm-hmm. So any new investor, they always, you know, new investors, if I ever hear, Oh, the MLS doesn't work. You know, I made 10 offers and, you know, didn't get anywhere. And so I'm trying something new. I always say, Hey, the most important thing is to understand how to position yourself when you're talking to an agent, how to position yourself versus another investor and versus a retail buyer. Because those are the two people that you're going to constantly be competing against. Somebody who's a retail buyer uh, who does have a higher offer, well, there's certain ways, depending on the property, that we can win in that situation. Not always. A lot of times we lose because the retail buyer just has a much higher price. But if it's close on price, a lot of times we can 
sell the agent on why there's so much more value working with us versus a one-time buyer. And so you're just constantly looking at how can I influence the agent in a positive way to really get them excited about working with us so they do sell our offer very hard to the to the seller. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, that's just been one of the keys that, that I always share with, with relatively new investors. I like that a lot. That's amazing. Now, a question I had is, well, are, you're mostly rehabbing all of these houses, right? Or do you wholesale any of these that you get from the MLS? We do, but very rarely. Um, we tend to wholesale more when we get a seller direct mail call or an online lead. It's, uh, we, we, we tend to rehab more, period. That's just because okay. it's more profitable, right? Yeah. I love wholesaling, but I think after – it really depends on your lifestyle. That, yeah. That's really the bottom line. There are a lot of investors, all they do is wholesale and been doing it for years because they like to travel and they don't like the long-term commitment. They don't. <laughs> I don't know who would do that one, Joe. No, I'll probably <laughs> – you probably won't catch me rehabbing homes. Yeah, and, and, and that's awesome. You can't, you can't really wholesale short sales with all the new um, – disclosures and addenda and all the deed restriction and all that stuff. It is more of a long-term strategy. So it does take a lot of the other people out that are trying to flip these things quick. You're absolutely right. You know, if for MLS deals, you're going to find it very, very cumbersome to wholesale. Yes. If the property is listed by a seller who is not in pre-foreclosure and they have equity and the eight, can you line things up? So can you buy it and then turn around and sell it, you know, in a double closing? Yes, you can. Um, deed restrictions. You're the, you know, we, we don't, there, there, you know, people teach a bunch of creative ways or things to do, but at the end of the day, I think I would just advocate, you know, gain rehabbing knowledge and rehab the property because it's going to be a more profitable deal. So that that's our business model. You know, some people have a business model of developing shopping centers. Some have a business model of buying and holding rentals only. And, so our business model has, you know, primarily been driven by rehabbing properties and then wholesaling properties whenever we're too busy. So sure. that's 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 really how we've done it. Other people choose to to run it a different way, which is awesome. You know, you got to do what fits you best. I've found on the MLS, you're going to probably have to gravitate towards rehabbing or buying and holding properties. Absolutely. You know, we pick up buy and hold properties all the time off off the MLS, that's going to be your business model. If you're uh, really focused on wholesaling, I'm going to say you're going to want to spend a lot of your time getting direct to the seller through other marketing campaigns. You just have a higher probability on on deals of being sure. able to do. Uh, it's a lot easier to navigate. Sure. One more question I have about how you get deals on the MLS. Do you ever go after, because you were mentioning you're always looking for the new listings as soon as they come up, and I think it's so cool that you're following up with the people that said no. I mean, even in direct mail, 40, 50% of your deals are going to come from people who said no at one time. But are you also going in and are you um, calling, like contacting pending listings at all? Like if a property goes pending, do you call the agent up and say, hey, if this falls through, call us? If we do that, if we've already previously contacted them. Okay. So in our follow-up system, if it you know, if we took 100 listings that day and narrowed it down to 10, and if that makes our follow-up list, then yes, we will. Do we go back and search the MLS? 
we don't just because there's enough new listings. Uh, and you know, we, although it sounds like a lot having two guys dedicated to it, you know, we, we can't even get to the whole MLS. It's too big. Um, and so a new investor, I would say, eventually you want to get to the newly listed newly listings every day. But if, if you're a new investor, you might start off looking at things that are over 120 days listed or 90 days listed or 60 days listed, because you will find some properties that went to contract and then fell out of escrow. And then that's, those are some of the best deals that we get in our follow-up process. And you can find those without doing new listings. You can find out ones that, have been previously listed and then re-hit the market because they fell out of contract. And you're going to a lot of times be dealing with a very frustrated seller at that point and yeah. agent. Yeah. And so you're going to get a, a better deal. So if you're working it for the first time, I would guide you towards what you're saying, Joe, to go look for properties that just recently fell out of contract, or you look for banged up properties and you put in a backup offer or at least contact the agent and say, Hey, if this falls out of escrow, it's worth a phone call. If this falls out of escrow, give me a call. If this falls out of escrow, give me a call, right? You don't even have to make an offer. You just got to be in front of the agent. So if it does, so we will follow up, um, very aggressively on the ones that we've previously contacted, but not, not new ones that fall out of escrow. I think it's really key too. It, it doesn't take much time to look through a hundred properties, to be honest. And you you know you're you're not talking about making a hundred offers. You're talking about just narrowing that down to ten, and focusing on those ten. I, it makes it much more manageable. What were you going to say, Alex? Yeah, I was going to ask him. Uh, comp- you know, as we're talking about business structure and everything, what would be the compensation for two people working the uh, MLS full time? Is that more of an hourly structure or a uh, result structure or what bonuses or? How, what would you say you do there, or what do you? Do? That depends on the the investor's experience level, who's hiring, and the market they're in, cost of living. So there's no like, I wish I could. Just, I wish it was easy as just saying, you know, here here's what you pay, ten percent or five percent. Um, I here's what I would what I would suggest: start out hourly, regardless, to make sure they're good, right? Start out, you know, you want to find somebody in sales, period, you know, hmm. or high level customer service you know, somebody who's done insurance sales or maybe a really good agent who, who just hasn't fully developed their business yet, or somebody, you know, mortgage broke, somebody who's been in sales, uh, an appraiser, somebody who's a junior appraiser, maybe they just got their real estate appraisal license and they've been doing it for a year, but, but they, you know, don't have a full fledged business yet. Cause you want to be able to get someone at a relatively inexpensive rate, you know, as you're building your business. And then as it gets more developed, they'll earn more, you know? So for us, um, what I, what I always suggest is for three to a six month period, they should be paid hourly and then you should switch to commission. And the commission rate is going to be really based on your business model. Are you doing mainly wholesale deals? Are you rehabbing deals? How much work are they doing versus what you're doing? Uh, are you in wholesale rehab and buy and hold? Because then you have to come up with different structures for different types of acquisitions. But you want to move them to commission because you, the, for, you, the end of the day, you always want to move everyone to commission if you can sure. because you're going to get more productivity. And there, a skilled a skilled acquisition person wants to work on commission. If they're in sales, you're going to have confidence and they'll work harder. They'll be there on Saturday. They'll be there on Sunday. They'll be there in the evenings. Um, 
because they realize they're pay- they don't get paid if they don't close deals. So after three to six months after that trial period, if things are working out, you want to move them to commission. And, you know, what, what are most people, you know, our students who have, work Ohio markets to Florida markets, most of their acquisition team members are making somewhere between, I would say, at a minimum 35 grand to low six figures, uh, you know, 100, 120 grand uh, for some. You know, and our, our uh, acquisition guys are going to be, a couple are going to be over six figures and a couple are going to be under, but they're going to be closer to six figures. But that's on our market. You know, that's on our market and uh, the types of properties we go after. When we were in Connecticut, our acquisition team members were making anywhere from 35 to, to 70, you know. So that was the commission structure we had in place just based on the property values, based on, on, on what, what you can get, what kind of talent you can get in that area. So that's, that kind of gives people a perspective if, if they are growing their team. That's good. That's good. Well, Than, do you, where can people go to get more information? Do you have uh, maybe a course, or do you have? Do you just send people to Fortune Builders if they want to get more information about you and, and the systems that you've created to do things like this with offers on the MLS? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you a, a website people can go to. It's FortuneBuildersMastery.com. If you if you're interested in coaching, consulting services, that's what we do with a lot of investors around the country. Um, you can go there and find out. It's fortunebuildersmastery.com, and there's a little short video there just about what we do and how we do it, and, and uh, there's an application process that people go through for our coaching and consulting. But, uh, yeah, that's how uh, people can find us. Excellent. fortunebuildersmastery.com. And keep an eye out for you guys, too, because you're traveling a lot, doing workshops in various cities. And I know you guys were just in St. Louis recently, and you have a you have a team of guys that goes around. It's not you, that that does that. But uh, I've been to those workshops before, and they're really good. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, we uh, we do that in various cities. Uh, not not all cities, but a lot of cities around the country. We'll do workshops occasionally um, in the area. So if they have if people have time, absolutely check us out. Check out one of our workshops uh, from that standpoint. Yeah. Well, good, Than. You've been gracious again with your time. We really appreciate it. The book, if everybody wants to know the link again, is thanmerrillbook.com, thanmerrillbook.com, and the main website where people can go to get more information on your education and coaching, which we highly recommend, is fortunebuildersmastery.com, fortunebuildersmastery.com. And I got four pages of uh, notes here. This is really good stuff. (laughs) I appreciate it. Well, well, you guys do an awesome podcast, and I encourage everybody to uh, keep listening. I, I appreciate your time, Joe and Alex, is, and uh, encourage everyone to keep listening to everything you guys put out. Well, thank Thanks. you. Thank you, Than. And I'll, you know what? I'm going to be in San Diego in November, I think. So I'm, I'll shoot you an email to see what you're doing. I'm going to be with, um, you know, those guys at Collective Genius. Oh, cool! Yeah, their... give me a call. Uh, shoot me an email when you're when you're headed out here, and we'll get yeah. together. Okay, Than. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Thank Joe. you guys. Thanks, okay. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Take care, guys. See you.